We're going to con- keep talking about the prayers of the New Testament. This time uh, we're coming to this prayer in Romans chapter 15. Um, I'm going to read a little before it. The actual prayer itself starts in verse 5. and uh, But I'm going to read to get a little bit of the context. In this case, we've got to go all the way through chapter 14, half of chapter 13, to really understand what's going on here. But uh, we'll catch up with that. But here's, here's the text. Now, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And then here's the prayer. Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Um, We could begin with the question, um, like, what are you willing to argue about? It's one of what this text is about is this sort of concept of unity or harmony in the life of the church, especially, but maybe even more generally. Uh, and the question is, what is something you should fight over versus something you wouldn't fight over? Uh, and so as we think about this, uh, we're, if we put this in the context of chapter 14, the whole chapter is about uh, how you uh, shouldn't fight over this or that or the other thing. Well, are, is there anything you should fight over? Uh, these are some of the questions that we're going to kind of address along the way. But we're going to start with this question, to whom is this prayer addressed? Well, all prayers are addressed to God, right? But what, how is God described in this particular text? It says, the God who gives perseverance and encouragement. Who gives perseverance and encouragement. Well, in the context of potential disagreement or disharmony, in, among people, what is it you need perseverance for? <laughs> well, we get a clue in the text, the first part of the text we read. We who are strong ought to bear the weakness. Well, that's perseverance of the, of the weak. Uh, <clears throat> so each is to please his neighbor for his good. Uh, well, if someone is in a position of relative weakness to you, and let's put it bluntly, relative stupidity, well, you're going to have something to persevere. <laughs> that's a difficulty. That's something to endure. If someone is immature and you're called upon to bear that. That doesn't even really seem very reasonable, does it? For the person in the position of strength to simply bear the weakness of of another person they're in contact with, that seems uh, that weird. Yeah. Well, so who are we asking in this prayer We're asking the God who gives perseverance, the God who will 
give you the capacity to bear with the relatively weak person, the immature person. Now, this is also the God who gives encouragement, which is the other thing you're called upon. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good. So what I'm called upon to do with my neighbor who might be in this relatively immature position, I'm called upon to please him, but for his good, right? Now that's an important condition. If I'm just called upon to please him, uh, that would be, that would be really silly. That would have all the people, all the mature people spoiling the immature people. Uh, so I, I'm called upon here to really actually think about his good for his edification, his building up. Uh, but anyway, so we're starting with the God who has the resources that we need for the uh, commandment that we have in this context to, to bear the weaknesses of the weak and to please our neighbor for their good or for their benefit or for th to build them up. <clears throat> um, so then now we come, now we've noticed who we're asking, what is it we're asking for? And uh, that's in verse six of this text. Uh, may God, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. To be of the same mind according to Christ Jesus. So there's a calling or a need, we would say, the thing we're praying for here is that we would be like-minded according to Christ Jesus. Um, now, the phrase here, it's kind of interesting. If you translate it really literally, it says something like this, that God would grant you to think the same among one another. If we ask, uh, what does it mean to be like-minded? We might say, well, it just literally means to think the same. And if that's all we had here, that is what it would mean to think the same. That means I believe the same things you believe. We follow the same kind of logic that, you know, that comes from a personal set of beliefs. We, we're alike in our thinking. But this phrase, to think the same among one another, carries another little feature, which is to think together to think together. So not just to think alike, but to think together in order to think alike. This involves a conversation. We often think, okay, if we talk about these, <clears throat> this need for me to bear with somebody who's less mature or for somebody to bear with me when I'm less mature as something that operates kind of in isolation. I'm just, I, you, you do something or say something that I know better. Uh, and this text says, well, don't judge, just, you know, bear it. Well, I'm not called upon to just do that all by myself and leave the two of us in separation. I'm called, or I'll call, that God is, will grant us to think together. And uh, so there's a, there's a priority of fellowship in this context. Um, now, we're still not done with the request. Grant us to think the same together, to be like-minded by actually talking to each other and working out how we think together, but there's also some specific content of thought in mind. He says, so that uh, you may think together 
uh, according to Christ Jesus. So there's a specific direction for our thinking. It is to be directed to Christ. I, we, we might also say it's to be grounded in Christ. There's, uh, it's to be gospel thinking. It's to be about the implications of the gospel. And in this context, of course, where we're talking about the strong bearing with the weak, each of us pleasing his neighbor for the neighbor's benefit, uh, uh, based on the model of Christ, who didn't think of himself but thought of others, uh, all of that makes sense, that we're, we're moving from Christ and to Christ in our thinking. Now, we could think about anything on that basis. Um, so we're called upon to work together so that we think, some people like this term, Christianly. <laughs> I don't like the idea of turning the word Christian into an adverb, but uh, we think from a Christian perspective, from a, the how things flow from Christ and to Christ idea. And that's the calling where, in which we're thinking together. So <clears throat> the question is, how are we going to do that? How do we think together according to Christ? And for that, I think you have to go back through the context of chapter 13, most of chapter 13 and all of chapter 14. Uh, and because it's in that text that Paul is sort of laying out how we should behave toward one another according to Christ. And now he's sort of, this is his sort of closing prayer on that sermon, if you will. So we're going to go through this pretty fast. But if you looked at chapter 13 and verse 8, you'd say, you'd read this. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. If there's any other commandment, it's summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the first feature of this thinking together in Christ is it's love one another. In, uh, uh, in, at the end of chapter 13, he says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. And all of this is in this context of love one another, of the harmony or the unity that we experience in our relation to Christ. And so he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. So this person is putting on Christ. It's like putting on some clothing. I'm going to put Christ on. So when you watch me living, it will look like watching Jesus living. And then it says, make no provision for the flesh, which means just reject the desires of the flesh. I mean, and if you want to know what they are, there's a good list in Galatians chapter 5. The desires of the flesh are. <laughs> and uh, you can read all about it, and we all kind of know what that is. Uh, it's the sort of self-directed life, the life that lives for itself, and... and uh, therefore engages in all kinds of bad behavior because it's self-centered. And so here we're talking about opening up ourselves to love others and out of the love of Christ. And so we're not so self-centered. And, and there's in this text, there's a, there's a kind of active rejection of living according to the desires of the flesh. 
All right, and then uh, if we moved on into chapter 14, uh, we have this long discussion about differences of opinion. In fact, pretty much the whole entirety of chapter 14 is, what do you do with differences of opinion? <laughs> have, you, have you ever had a difference of opinion with, with a fellow Christian? Always. <laughs> uh, yeah, because there are more opinions than there are people. <clears throat> uh, I have a bunch of opinions, and so do you, and they are not all alike. So this concept of thinking alike together is what's in mind all the way back to the beginning of chapter 14. And <clears throat> anyway, he's saying, uh, now accept the one who's weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. You realize that Paul just called vegetarianism weak? <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that, but uh, there's a different reason for vegetarianism when, that Paul's addressing here. But... The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Oh, so we're talking about life in the body together of our fellow Christians who have different opinions about eating. In this case, we're really talking about eating meat. And since we're talking about eating meat, we're talking about meat that had been involved in some pagan sacrifice, because that's where we got our meat in these days. So <clears throat> some people thought, oh, it's sort of condoning the pagan sacrifice if I eat this meat. So I'm not eating it. And Paul's saying, look, some people make that choice. Some people are okay with eating it. It's not the meat. No, you know. Uh, and he's saying, look, don't judge one another about this difference of opinion. And he's very clearly calling it a difference of opinion, which is important. So... Here's how I'm going to summarize this. Allow for differences of conviction. Now, I'm not, I quit using the word opinion, and now I'm using conviction. Allow for differences of conviction on matters of conviction. And not don't just allow for it. Allow for it with sacrificial love. And this whole chapter, it's quite, uh, it's very interesting how, how he calls us to deal with the, each other. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. This is a matter of personal conviction. And so he says, the one who observes the day observes it for the Lord. So we're talking about a Christian who, out of his commitment to the Lord, decides this is the day to celebrate. Another one says, in the Lord all days are alike. Uh, and so he does that for the Lord as well. Uh, <clears throat> he who eats not, for the Lord he eats not, <laughs> and gives thanks to God. Say that again. He who eats not, or he who doesn't eat, doesn't eat for the Lord. In other words, he's, this is his personal conviction in his own service to God. Uh, not one of us lives for himself, that's important, and not one dies for himself, we belong to the Lord. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. So he's saying, look, you and your brother with whom you have a different sub-opinion are both, we both belong to the Lord the same. Uh, to this end, Christ died and lived again. So he's saying, why do you judge your brother? Uh, let us not judge one another anymore, but determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Now he's got something new. He's saying, look, you should just put up with differences of opinion over matters of conviction. And not everything is a matter of conviction. 
But over matters of conviction, you should just put up with differences of opinion. But he's saying, not just that. You put up with it with sacrificial love. In other words, you're going to accommodate the difference of opinion. And let's think about what we're talking about. So he says, don't insist on your liberty if it grieves your brother. Now, for many years, at least in the American church, we had a giant controversy over consuming alcohol of any kind. And for most of the evangelical Christian community, consuming alcohol was widely regarded as sinful because of the damage it did in society. Well, of course, we have Christian brothers on all sides of that question. Uh, And uh, you might think, well, consuming alcohol would really have a damaging effect on anyone who had a problem with alcoholism. (laughs) So that's that for him, the personal conviction of not consuming alcohol is kind of important. Uh, And what Paul says here is very interesting. He says, don't insist on liberty if it grieves your brother. Oh. Sorry, I lost my place here. Uh... Determine this, not to put an obstacle or stumbling block in a brother's way. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. So he's saying, like to people in those days who didn't mind eating this meat that had been part of a pagan sacrifice, because... Uh, And when we belong to Christ, we realize that pagan sacrifices are actually just meaningless. Uh, Then uh, he's saying, yeah, but if your brother who, who just recently was recovered from the pagan worship system, says, I don't want to have anything to do with it, then he's saying, look, don't eat it if it's going to hurt him. Now that requires you to make an actual judgment about whether it's really going to hurt him or not. Uh, You could apply this principle in the context of that alcohol decision in like this. Uh, You know your friend has has a problem with alcohol, you might just avoid the whole problem by not drinking around him. Or you might ask him, is it okay if I have a beer? You know, even though you know it's not okay for him to have one. Uh, All of that requires you to have a certain level of relationship with the guy, right? First of all, you'd have to know he has a problem here. Um, So, uh, here, what Paul is calling us to is to love our brother in accommodating their weaknesses. Very interesting. So the thing to do is to pursue love. Pursue. He says this in verse 19. Uh, so then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. We don't just make trouble over our maturity. <laughs> In fact, if I say, well, I'm, I'm mature enough to know I'm free to do this, and you're immature, and you don't know you're free to do this, so I'm gonna do it anyway. Well, I'm just behaving immaturely. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be intentionally gracious in these areas of disagreement. And I'm willing to sacrifice my liberty to have a drink if having a drink is going to hurt somebody. Well, that makes sense. So uh, pursue peace and edification. Now, when I 
put in the word edification, now I'm coming to a new understanding that is, uh, my brother who doesn't know that he has this freedom should know he has this freedom. Right? I mean, he, he is actually described in this text as immature. But I need to be careful in thinking through how do I help, how do I build him up without tearing him down? How do I communicate in the body that we are free in this or that way without doing damage? Well, all of this means we're going to have to work on it together. I can't just go to my friend who thinks that all drinking is a sin and have an argument with him about how all drinking is not a sin. Instead, we need a conversation about how does the scripture fully address this question. I mean, there's all kinds of these little churchy rules, right? There's churches who think you shouldn't go see a movie. Dance, smoke. Go dancing, or smoke tobacco, or use any tobacco of any kind, or you name it. I mean, there's got to be a church somewhere that has a rule about almost anything you could think of. And what Paul's saying is, okay, everybody's got rules. In fact, every, each one of us has some system of ethics that we think is the way to do right. To distinguish between right behavior and bad behavior. And they're not all alike. So what he's encouraging us in this prayer is, think about it, but not by yourself. Don't think about how you can justify your own system of right and wrong. Think about it together and according to Christ. Oh, well, that, that's very, that's actually very helpful. I can say, oh, well, Frankie and I, we don't agree about everything. But we'd like to agree in Christ about anything. How will we, work, how will we do it? We'll have a conversation about it. That's how. It's not rocket science. What we tend to do in these things, though, is not have a conversation, but have an argument. <laughs> and so we need the grace of God to have a conversation instead of an argument. Uh, I think sometimes the boundary between conversation and argument is hard to find. Like, we might be having a conversation and a few minutes later realize we've shifted into an argument. Yeah. All right, well, back up. Uh, so there's a kind of a summary statement uh, at, at the end, well, that we read in chapter 15. Each of us is to please his neighbor, but not simple, please your neighbor, but please his neighbor for his good for his edification. So Paul's prayer is sort of establishing the goal of sacrificial living for the sake of others, to build them up in faith. Now, if I, if I have a certain perception of our liberty in Christ and someone is less mature, I assume as they grow in Christ, they also will realize these same liberties. So my principal goal is help them to grow in their experience of the gospel. Um, <clears throat> and that might, along the way, include something like, I'd like to point out to you that the scripture doesn't actually prohibit eating this particular meat or drinking that particular beverage. It might be a useful personal rule, 
but it's not required. Well, this begs the question then, what's the difference between what's required and what's useful? Uh, so what Paul is getting at here is not insisting on ethical compliance. In other words, I, as your pastor, I don't need to lay out the law for you and then insist that you just obey whatever system of ethics I've derived from the Bible. And also, by the way, this includes uh, doctrinal compliance. I don't need you to hold all of my theological opinions uh, because some things are just that. Now, I'm, I want all my opinions to be in one form or another an interpretation of the scripture, but people who are serious about the interpretation of the scripture don't all draw the same conclusions. And so we need to think about, well, what's, what is a, what's a personal conviction and what's just required? What's essential and what's opinion? Uh, so I put this little box on your handout there to sort of help with this, maybe, <laughs> I hope. Uh, and the first section is about matters of doctrine, and the second section is about matters of ethics. Because there are things declared in the Bible that are not matters of personal conviction. They're simply declared to be true. And so in the area of doctrine, we, saw, we frequently divide this into essential doctrines, and then what I'm calling functional necessity doctrines, and what I'm calling matters of interpretation or conviction. Sometimes these are called primary, secondary, and tertiary doctrines. Essential doctrines are the doctrines one must hold in order to be Christian. <laughs> in other words, they're, they're really just not flexible. They're not a matter of opinion. This is a very short list. In fact, I believe I've given you a comprehensive list and there's only five things on it. And if you don't, if you have a different opinion about these five things, then you're not in any sense an Orthodox Christian. And this goes back to the Nicene Creed. You know, it's the it's ancient Orthodox Christian faith. So that requires us to hold to the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is an eternal being in three persons. It requires us to hold to the doctrine of creation, that God is the creator of all things other than God. That there isn't anything that exists that he did not create except himself and because he's eternal. So we have the doctrine of the Trinity, which would include the eternality of God, and we have the doctrine of creation. And then we have this highfalutin term, the hypostatic union. All that is is a shorthand way of saying that in the person of Christ, the second, the Son of God, this person of Christ was incarnate as a human being. And he, since that time, eternally exists as fully man and fully God, without any mixture of the two natures. So he's not a hybrid God-man. He's all God, there is to be God, and he's all human, there is to be human. <clears throat> uh, so that dual nature of the person of Christ is utterly essential to the Christian faith. If you don't get that, then if you don't, if you disagreed with that, then you are not legitimately called a Christian. The fourth thing is the substitutionary atonement, which simply means Christ died for our sins. 
There are differences of opinion about exactly what the substitutionary atonement means, but you can't have, it's not just the atonement, it's the substitution. You got to have both of those uh, things. Christ, Christ's death was a death in our place. Uh, and then the last thing is the second coming. We, uh, all Orthodox Christians believe Christ, the man Jesus, will return in the flesh. Those things we don't have differences of opinion about within the church because a difference of opinion separates a person from the church. That's, that's what we are talking about here. But then we have another set of doctrines we might call a functional necessity. And I would put, I would put these doctrines, I call this functional necessity because I think any given local church would have to have agreement about these things in order to function. In other words, if we have a difference of opinion about this, we're going to have to have different bodies of Christians. They're still Christians. They're in the body but they are going to have a really hard time serving together as a local church. Uh, and so I put some, some examples. Now here, these can only be examples because the list is long. Uh, now I put the doctrine of the inerrancy of the Bible. The Bible's true, no errors in this category. And the doctrine of the authority of Scripture in this category Though that, those are, in my mind, boundary. They're on the border of essential. Because I think you'd have a hard time holding to those other essential things if you don't hold to this thing. So some of these functional necessity things, we would have our, one of the things we'd argue about is whether they belonged in this category or not. <laughs> you know, like, do you... Can you be a legitimate Christian and not accept the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture? Now, when I ask that question, my final answer is, yeah, you could be. But you're going to have a hard time. Uh, that's not in the Nicene Creed. Uh, yeah, but... If we don't have that, how do we ever get the Nicene Creed? So it's right on that line in my estimation. Some people would put it above the line. Some people would put this in the essential category. I don't believe I could be a part of any church that didn't hold to that. And that's what I mean by functional necessity. Do I think there are real believers in Jesus who don't hold to that? The answer is yes. Uh, another one is the, the practice of the sacraments. What about baptism and the Lord's table? There are different views of the meaning and the practice of those things. Well, any one church is going to have to have one opinion about that. You can't have a bunch of different opinions operating all in the same church on that because the church does these things. So, you, you can't baptize, only the church can baptize somebody. So any given church is going to have to have a practice of baptism. Um, I suppose you could have the point of view that in, even in one church we'll do it whatever way anyone likes, but that, that doesn't seem very practical to me. So in that case, if you could do that, then this is too high on the list. And it should be in the third category. It's a matter of opinion. Uh, another functional necessity is the doctor, set of doctrines I'm calling sovereign grace. Uh, and, and that just means God's initiative in, in saving grace. God saves people. Uh, so some people think this is all uh, the work of God initiated by God. And some people think, uh, some churches think it's uh, God, God meets us halfway. So when I move toward God, he moves toward me. It's sort of based on what I do. 
Well, I think you'd have a hard time holding together differences of opinion on that issue in the same church. Maybe you could, in which case it'd be in the matters of interpretation category. The one that's probably the most obvious in this category is, wow, I'm running out of time, is the, is the idea of church polity. I mean, you can't have one church with two different ways of organizing and operating. And that's what church polity means. How do, what's the structure of elders and authority and how do you organize your ministry together? That is a question of functional necessity. The other things, uh, matters of interpretation or conviction, and I've just given you two examples. What's the nature of spiritual gifts? Uh, what's the timeline of the second coming? And my personal opinion is you could have a wide variety of opinions on these subjects within a given fellowship of Christians and you could figure out how to operate together. The, the nature of the gifts question would be tricky because gifts function in the, in the ministry of the church. Uh, so that would be, that's kind of a borderline case as well, maybe in the category above. What, what I'm, the reason we're talking about this is because we want to reserve, we want to think together, according to Christ, in all of these categories below essential. When we're talking about ethics, there's explicit commands in the scripture. Thou shalt not steal. Okay, stealing is a violation of God's law. There's no question or dispute about that. Well, then we have all kinds of Christian commandments that we derive from the scripture. The, my example about consuming alcohol was a, an example of that. The scripture says, don't harm your brother. If we've determined that if you ever have a drink, it's, you're going to harm somebody, then we've determined that drinking is a sin. Uh, so that's a derivative commandment. Scripture says, take care of your physical body. On that basis, many Christians say, therefore, smoking is a sin because it's obviously harmful to your body. You could say the same thing about overeating or bad eating or any other things you might do with your body, any number of other things. Uh, those are derivative commandments. The commandment is take care of your body. The derivative commandments are what you must do in order to take care of your body. These are the commandments the Pharisees built up around the law of God in order to avoid disobeying the law of God. Derivatives. And then, of course, there's all kinds of personal opinions. I think this is right. If you ask me to make a, bar, a, a biblical argument for why I think that's right, it'd be tricky. But it's my personal opinion. You should do this and you shouldn't do that. Um, so in both of these areas, the, the points of dispute are in the second two categories. They're in the categories of functional necessity or matters of opinion. And then what we're called upon here it to do is, I don't, I don't say you're not a good Christian if you don't comply with what I think in those areas. Instead of saying you're not a good Christian if you don't agree with me about this, I say, let's think together and in the gospel to see if we can agree. See if we can agree about anything. And even if we make that effort and we can't, then what? We 
agree to disagree. The New Testament, uh, the scripture in general, elevates the possibility of agreeing to disagree. It, it says explicitly in this text and really all over the place that you disagreeing with me does not need to be a personal rejection. Now, we are living in a society these days that increasingly says disagreement is rejection. If you disagree, if you think something other than what I think, you are rejecting me, therefore I reject you. And you can see that the inevitable effect of that line of thinking is, will be to fracture our society, will be to drive us apart from each other. And especially in the body of Christians, we are called upon to disagree agreeably and to say, okay, we don't think exactly the like here, but you are my brother and I will personally care for you whatever we think or agree or disagree about, unless it's in one of these areas that are just above the line. Like, I can't call you my Christian brother if you reject the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement. Uh, you're just not. Now, the scripture also calls upon us Christians to disagree agreeably when we're dealing with somebody outside the fellowship of the church. So we don't suddenly no longer have a duty to someone to love someone because they're not one of us. Quite the opposite. So... <clears throat> Uh, now, this doesn't mean that uh, unity isn't important or that in theology uh, we don't want to work for unity. It's just calling us to work for unity. Hmm. So to be, to think together alike and according to the logic of the gospel. What's the purpose or the result of God granting us this like-mindedness? And that's in uh, verse 6, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, look, this is how they'll know you're my disciples if you love one another. If you have this sort of unconditional acceptance, even in the face of disagreement, if, you are always, if you're taking care of each other, even when you disagree with each other, if you regard each other as brothers in a family, uh, that's, that is the thing that glorifies God in the body of Christ, the exhibition of the love of God in Christ. So he says that here, with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. To me, just the doctrines of the gospel help with this because whatever else we might disagree about, we will agree upon those things. Um, so the idea here is the idea of sacrificially loving fellowship. We think together. We think together. And that doesn't erase the fact that each of us is thinking, but we also engage the conversation and think together. The summary of all this is in verse 7. Therefore, accept one another. <laughs> just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. We often talk about have, have the question of whether someone has accepted Christ. I think the real question is whether Christ has accepted them. But uh, in this case, he's saying, look, Christ has accepted us for the glory of God. So we accept one another. I like the, uh, the concept of acceptance. Uh, it means to welcome. It's actually the word you'd use for inviting someone into your home. You accept them into your circle, into your life. And it's kind of unconditional. And the more we know each other, the more we know our disagreements. And so Paul is praying for us that 
we would, that God would enable us to work together in order to think alike, but not just think alike, think alike according to Christ. And not just think alike according to Christ, but think alike together according to Christ. Think together to engage in the conversation and work to agree. And when we disagree, to do so and remain accepting. In other words, I don't reject you because you just don't think the way I think. That's sounds easy when I say it just now. I don't reject you just because you don't think exactly the way I do or you don't have the same standards that I have. It seems like a simple thing to ask, but it is very challenging, I find, in life. It's very easy to go from disagreement to rejection. And uh, the Lord is calling us to remain loving in the face of disagreement, to extend grace, acceptance, because of the acceptance we've received, even when we don't see eye to eye. That's challenging, and we need, we need the Lord to grant us this. <laughs> uh, we want to come back at the end of every one of these conversations and notice this is a prayer, not a commandment. Well, in this case, it's a prayer about the commandment. You're going to have a hard time pulling this off if God doesn't give you this the thing. If, God, if the God who gives perseverance and encouragement doesn't help you with it. Wow, that got a little long. But I think we're done. I have a question. Yeah. I have a question, actually. Certain people that do interesting things to they hear what you have to say to them because um, most of the time when um, other Christians um, see others smoking or drinking, mm-hmm. they get the impression I told you it was a Christian. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, I'm, I'm thinking, not that I'm thinking, but uh, I acknowledge that um, the Holy Spirit has power, power. Actually, when we, accept, when we accept Christ Jesus as the person who saved it, that means to say the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. comes developing us and it, and it fortifies us in the long run when we decide, make our decisions. Whether exactly. Whether or not. Right. You know? So it's just like um, if, if, uh, in the scriptures that, that's uh, speaking of uh, your body is a temple of God, that means to say you're not overdoing nothing that you do, you overdo. Yeah, you take you take care of yourself. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that's the idea. That, that's how I see it, and I and I um to judge someone else who's who's doing it. Right. On the other hand, it's it's not everybody could accept that, you know. No, that's right. It's, it's so one of the thing, right? one of the areas that ends up in this category is our disagreements about which areas are in which categories. Uh, you know, this goes on and on. So. Uh, I have, I have a certain conviction about our liberty in those areas. Other Christians have a different conviction and would say those are not areas of liberty. Well, I'm called upon to try to do this. Not let anyone call something I have liberty to do sin. That's actually in this text. Okay, so... <laughs> And also accommodate the people who are calling it sin. Well, you are not going to be able to do that if you don't talk to them. It's that simple. If I think, look, a a Christian's free to drink. It's a matter of personal choice. There's no prohibition in the scripture. But someone says, yeah, but drinking is harmful, therefore Christians should not do it. And they're not wrong. Drinking is harmful in many instances. Uh, Well, so I'm called upon, the scripture says, don't let anyone call your liberty sin. Well, there's someone calling my liberty sin. And 
at the same in the same chapter it says accommodate the, that difference of opinion with love sacrifice so if somebody's going to be offended by you having a drink then don't have the drink you're you're free you could do it either way but as long as i'm just not having the drink around them then we're not done yet because they're still calling my liberty sin well when we got to have a or there's no way out of this without having a conversation and if the conversation is going to immediately devolve into an argument we're stuck so this we need the grace of god in these kinds of situations and that's a kind of petty example actually drinking but the the yeah so what how do we how are we going to make our way the scripture here doesn't say to one side just accommodate the other side or to the other side just accommodate the other side it it says think together so i don't know of any way of thinking together other than talking to one another and to do so with grace and peace to have a real conversation about what the scripture says and what the gospel means and it's all about it it's all aimed at it's all grounded in Christ and aimed at coming to Christ so yeah this is what we're called to do now some people i mean you can only do what you can do right i i might with my personal opinion about the acceptability of alcohol consumption i might try to have a conversation with someone in the other point of view and they might make it impossible they might say no you're just wrong forget it then i'm then i'm just called upon to say well okay we we have a difference of opinion they they might not extend the same acceptance that I, that we're called upon to extend that happens i think this is based on that's exactly what this text says isn't it it says the more mature so then the more mature person if i think i'm that's who i am <laughs> and here you've got a situation where we both think that's who i am yeah because you go you come off you go back like a judgmental fool right yeah that's right yeah right so i want to be humble and consider that possibility Uh, there's a funny uh, expression in uh, Philippians chapter 3 where Paul is saying uh, it's the whole text about I abandon everything for the sake of knowing Christ I press on he concludes to the on toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus there let us therefore as many as are perfect you could translate that mature <laughs> have this attitude and if in anything you have a different attitude god will reveal that also to you so paul saying look this is the attitude everybody should have and then he has this sort of gracious way of saying and if you have a different opinion god can handle that and so in these all these areas of and this is a way more important <laughs> a way more important thing than most of the petty stuff we argue about. And so he's saying, look, if you have a difference of opinion, if if my opinion is the true one, God can bring you around. I'll I'll we'll have the conversation, we'll see if we can agree and if we can't, we both leave the conversation saying this, God will bring us to the right place in Christ. And so we disagree graciously. We don't think that because someone disagrees with me it's some sort of personal rejection. It's not. It's just we none of us have this entirely figured out. And so we don't have it figured out the same way yet. But we're supposed to work on it. Yeah. Good. Any other uh, comments or questions or <coughs>
I can see is also, <clears throat> you, can, you know, we're talking about the church, the brotherhood, but it also works in marriage and in politics. <laughs> and if we could get, Good. if we could get this <laughs> talk to the all the Americans, we would have a problem that we got now because people on this, well, they even divide within the party. Sure. They got different ideas and they need to sit down and talk about it. Rather than say, you're wrong, you're wrong. This is the, this is the problem we got right now in the States. They can't agree on anything. I think, I think you're right. In an American culture, we have turned to disagreeing disagreeably. Oh. Yeah. And we have a hard time accepting people who don't agree with our yeah. politics. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's the same in religion to Or any subject, I right. I think, I think yeah. that Joe wins his day, um, because I have, I have a, a, a three, two sisters and one brothers and, and Joe wins his family. It's like you feel that they separate, they want to separate you from yeah. their flock because according to them, they did a true religion, you know? So yeah. um, it's kind of difficult for you to, uh, discuss with them or have any conversation because nothing you say matters to them. You know, right. it's always they are the ones that they want to imply it, this this the way it should be. You know, so yeah, I I, I always tell my, my big brothers, listen, you know, I, I hate to discuss. And I, it's well, and I think things. sometimes the way to disagree disagreeably is to quit talking about yeah, it. Yeah. I, you know, in some cases, at some time, you have to use some right. judgment. And all of these things we talked about, there is a there is a clear distinction between uh, in in Christ and not in Christ. But these, like, it's a good observation, Bob, that for the Christian, these rules apply outside the border of the church. That even in those cases, I'm called upon to be. A peacemaking individual. In other, in other words, it's not that I give up my opinion, but uh, I give up the need for everyone to agree with me at all times. And that's difficult, but uh, I'm, I'm still okay with you, even if you reject Christ. Uh, you know, or anything else that's important yeah, to me. They, they refuse to, to accept the Trinity. Well, yeah. They're complicated to explain them a whole prayer. Yeah, that's right. There's no that the thing, and then is to pray for them because that's a spiritual insight that only God can grant. And yeah, so you're, and there you're talking about a clear distinction that is on our list of essentials, whether a person is really uh, a believer or not. Yeah. Yeah, I think the church has an opportunity to demonstrate this in the culture, by the way, yeah. in how we deal with each other and how we deal with the world. I don't think the church in America, at least, is doing a very good job of this outside well, either inside or outside the church, we have a very strong tendency to say it's my way or the highway, and it seems to be getting stronger all the time these days. And it's so we can pray this prayer for the church, for Christians everywhere to become, to be able to hold to the truth and let other people hold to whatever they think without rejecting the person. Uh, and in our culture, I think this is true in Western culture broadly, in our culture, we are <clears throat> rapidly moving toward disagreement is rejection. And we can be the community that demonstrates that disagreement doesn't need to include rejection. The culture is like disallowing that. So like, so when I disagree with you and still accept you, they say you're rejecting me, but we need to stick to it. 
Yeah. To the glory of God. <laughs> Let me pray. We're, uh, we're, we've used up our time. Father, thanks uh, for your grace and your goodness to us in Christ. Lord, help us to be good reflectors of your goodness and your grace. Help us to tell the truth, Lord, but to do so in love, to speak the truth in love, to be, to hold together grace and truth, and especially in our relationships with each other, Lord, to, uh, to really work together, to think about the truth, to think about uh, what you said to us in the scriptures and to develop our thinking according to that and according to Christ and to really work together to do that so that we have a high level of like-mindedness. And Lord, uh, help us in our interactions with the world also to be gracious people, to first of all, to love and to serve our neighbor, not to lead with correction, but Lord, to... uh, be accepting and truth-telling. And uh, Lord, that seems like a hard combination to pull off. So we ask for your wisdom and strength and for you to grant us the, the things that Paul has prayed for in this text. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.